the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Yes, sir, he is, and he's here to say hello, welcome, good to have you with us. It is a uh, Tuesday, first day of October. My goodness, the fourth quarter of the year has begun, and before you know it, it'll be sleigh bells and getting ready for Christmas and well, let's not rush things, right? My goodness, I think they already had the Christmas decorations up at Costco back in August. But I digress. Good to have you with us for another edition of Lifeline. We're here Monday through Friday at this time, addressing issues that impact your life, your world. Today we'll do more of the same a little bit later on in this hour. A bit of a fascinating history lesson. And while this might not be appropriate for all listeners, those of you that have a curiosity in history, and particularly that of World War II will be fascinated in meeting our guest tonight that gets into some of the history of the war, and in particular, one of perhaps the most notorious Nazi war criminals of all of World War II. It's the name you've never heard, and the one guy that got away with the help of the Americans— It's an amazing story, an eye-opener. Stay tuned for that. Best-selling author, investigative journalist, and lawyer Dean Reuter joins us. We talk about the untold story of America's deal with the devil, the hidden Nazi. That's coming up later on in tonight's program. Brian Johnston will drop by with an update what's going on at the U.S. Supreme Court. But as we begin, how about a little bit of a health checkup? Uh, It hasn't yet emerged as a major issue of this upcoming presidential and election cycle, but no doubt it will, and that is the issue of health care in America today. And while we've made some good strides in many respects, we have a long way to go. A recent report out that details America's health rankings, particularly as it affects women, infants, and children here in the state of California. And here to tell us more about some of the advancements and, quite frankly, some areas where we're slipping is the Chief Medical Officer for Women's Health. The report, by the way, Optum, America's Health Rankings Report, breaks down health of California women, infants, and children. And Dr. Linda Chengring, welcome to the program. Hi, happy to chat with you about women and children's health. Let's tell us a bit about the, the, the findings. As you look at this report, both in terms of uh, results here in California and, and nationally, um, give us some of the good news first. Where are we seeing some improvements when it comes to health amongst women and children? Absolutely. So the report is put out by the United Health Foundation, and we've got some good news in California. The overall rank is a seven of the states. And some of the strengths are that there's a low prevalence of smoking among women and a low prevalence of tobacco use during pregnancy. So right there are two very nice areas to see. There's also a low prevalence of what's called adverse childhood experiences. And those are situations where a child would 
be exposed to an unpleasant or harmful situation if they are in a home where there is a parent or caregiver that has severe depression, if they are a victim of abuse, if there are some struggles financially or other socioeconomic things, these can cause harm to that child and have effects as they go into adulthood. So some really nice strengths. Um, one of the areas I'm particularly fascinated in because it's been in the news so much over the last uh, several weeks, and that is the arena of, of vaping. What are you finding in terms of uh, teen cigarette smoking? And, and while maybe it's down in one arena, I bet there's a huge spike in, in nicotine use through vaping. Yeah, it is a good question. The report did not include e-cigarettes because at the time the report was initially, the questions were initially developed, e-cigarettes weren't as prominent. So we are looking to change that for a future report. So the report looked at tobacco use, which consisted of smoking as well as chewing tobacco. And so while we've seen some decrease in that in the teen population, that is possibly due to the onset and the prevalence of e-cigarettes. So we are looking to consider that in the future report. One of the areas, doctor, that I find troubling, particularly for a developed nation like the United States, and that is um, results of the report that indicates we've seen an increase in uh, child mortality by some 6%. That's a shocking number. To what do you attribute that to? Absolutely then that is concerning as a developing country. And we believe that it's driven by increases in death among children ages 5 to 14 and then 15 to 19, so two different periods of time. There was no change in the rate among children less than 4, but there was a 5% increase in the children ages 5 to 14 and a 10% in children age 15 to 19. And the largest increase actually has been among black children. So that is concern as far as are children getting enough care? What what's, are the dangers they face, such as motor vehicle crashes, as example, is one of the leading causes of death, as well as firearm-related injuries followed by cancer. So what are those risk factors that children are facing in their environments? Wow. So we've got a lot of work to do in that arena, to be sure. Absolutely. Um, the issue of teen suicide, wow, uh, this really ought to capture our attention because it, it indicates that while we've seen some improvements in areas such as reduction in um, out-of-wedlock birth or, or, or teen pregnancy, um, the, the physical health might be getting better in some arenas, but the mental and emotional well-being apparently not doing very well. What's going on? Yeah, I think there are a couple of things we can do, though. So teen suicide has increased drastically, and we're up 25% across the nation. We've gone from 8.4 to 10.5 deaths per 100,000 in adolescents age 15 to 19. And there's concerns as to why is that happening. We've, we need to look and see what are the resources available to children. How can we help children in making them feel that there's a safer space for them, that they can talk about what's going on. We know that bullying is an issue. We know that there's a concern of social isolation, so a phrase uh, called FOMO, fear of missing out, where children are seeing friends go off and go to different events and they're not invited and it's all broadcast on social media such as Snapchat or Instagram. So how can we make that safe space for our youth? where they can talk to their parents, talk to their friends if they're feeling 
that they are not as involved or as engaged. And having resources for them is extremely important. So what are the different things that different communities and high schools and middle schools are putting into effect to help those children? So I think really being able to talk safely is extremely important. So we as parents and as adults have to avoid any judgment. (coughs) Pardon me. High cost of health care is certainly a major issue in a state like California. Um, any major concerns there? What uh, what are you watching most closely right now? The one thing that showed up in the report was the high cost of infant child care for California, and that in the past three years, infant child care costs increased 29%, actually. So if a family is not able to get appropriate child care, that can affect their ability to go to work, for example, or go to school if it's a youth who has a child. So we have to look and see what services we can do to help people get appropriate child care so that they can also attend school or work, as the case may be. Um, insofar as health-related issues specifically, um, clearly as we touched on the vaping issue, that's that's going to be a growing concern for youth, youth uh, not only across the state but across the nation for that matter. Insofar as some of the other challenges that we're seeing right now, um, what can Californians be doing to, to help better improve conditions here? That's an excellent question. I think as you look at the challenges that California faces, at least in the report, there are a couple of other areas. There was a low prevalence of women with a dedicated health provider. So how can we make sure there's access to care? that women are able to go be seen for their care, because that's very important, whether they're pregnant or not. So that would be one area to look in. Is Are there certain pockets of California where the, we don't have enough providers to care for those women? Are there issues with coverage and insurance? There is also a low prevalence of supportive neighborhoods. So how can we and that's defined as neighborhoods that have appropriate school, appropriate after-school activities, what are those kind of things that public policymakers in California can look to putting in place? Bring a little bit more um, parity and certainly better access to health care across the state. Makes perfect sense. Big challenges. We appreciate the update. Dr. Linda Jenin, Chief Medical Officer, a look at this new report, Optum, America's Health Rankings. Some good news, but not all of it good. 5.15 from KFAX. Get a look on the, the traffic situation ahead, see whether or not that's encouraging. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, welcome back to the conversation 20 minutes after the hour. Let's uh, pivot to a broader topic here. Uh, there's so much obsession, fascination with everything unfolding in Washington, D.C. right now. And while the issues certainly are important, uh, let's not lose sight of a bigger, broader, more long-term issue, and that is the United States Supreme Court and the issue of life. Specifically, there are a number of key cases that are slated to come before the court that could have a, any one of which could have a critical impact on the future of life, and in specifically, perhaps the greatest impact since the ill-fated 1973 Roe v. Wade decision that made abortion legal in the United States in the first place. 
here to offer some insights. We're joined by Brian Johnston. Brian is the Western Regional Director with the National Right to Life Committee. Brian, certainly we've been kind of sitting at the cusp of this for years, decades now, uh, to know that we're finally moving along with a number of key and important constitutional justices now on the high court that we may, in fact, have the first greatest shot at changing the impact of Roe versus Wade since the 1973 decision. Tell us a bit more. What of these four cases? Well, Craig, I think it's important to realize the significance of Roe is still echoing, and I believe it's at the very heart of what we're seeing in Washington and the fact that the great divide between the radicals within the Democrat Party and those who want to restore the principles on which our nation was built, that is Roe. And it is now coming to the chopping block, so to speak. There's four cases that can possibly, and there's others that the court is looking at, but these cases are rather reasonable restrictions on abortion that Roe has prohibited. And even when Roe has been examined in the past, the Casey decision, it still did not remove the notion of choice that abortion should be done simply because it's chosen. And so these cases, the Louisiana case, let's start there. Louisiana, it requires, that law requires that the attending physician, the abortionist, uh, be able to have uh, uh, rights to a hospital, a normal hospital, within 30 miles of that abortion clinic. The reason being, and it doesn't get enough attention, but there are often complications from this procedure. Again, it's not examined and talked about popularly, but when an abortionist goes in, if they're not using an ultrasound, they're usually going in blind. They're feeling around for that child in the womb, groping, if you will. And that can often result in punctured uterus and other complications. And even when they do use ultrasound equipment, it's very uh, dangerous, the type of suction and curettage they use. So it's very important to be back up so that this young woman uh, not die of complications. That does happen. It has, happens much more often than is reported in the pop media. And so this is a law that basically says we want real doctors that if there is a complication, can actually do something to save this woman's life, not just somebody who appears at an abortion clinic and hands out free abortion. So uh, that's a significant requirement on the physician. And, um, again, it alarms uh, many, but, in fact, I don't see it as taking down road, to be honest, but it does challenge the regimen right now that um, these abortionists not have more training and more Ability to help the woman. Well, and from a a practical standpoint, Brian, I mean, as as much as, and you and I have been carrying on these dialogues on this radio program going on nearly 30 years now, uh, and as much as I think, uh, you know, hands down, everybody would like to see a complete, full, one off cessation of abortion on demand in America, the reality is this is a battle that was, well, quite frankly, lost in increments leading up to 1973, and I think we're going to have to win it back in increments, as we have been doing. And so from a practical standpoint, uh, isn't there a better chance to see this sort of uh, eaten away bit by bit until it's reduced to the point where we can completely declare victory as opposed to hoping for a single decision that ends everything? Well, what I'm really hoping for is that what we're going to see, and it's it's important for people to understand the purpose of the high court, 
It's not to make laws. Right. And many pro-lifers misunderstand that. They think, well, if the Supreme Court overturns Roe, then it's going to ban all abortions. It's not going to happen. Um, in fact, Roe itself violates the principles of the Supreme Court because it created law. It was judicial activism. So when Roe is overturned, all it's going to do is allow states to regulate or prohibit. And that is still a ways off. I think the Indiana case offers more hope for that. In Indiana, there's two aspects of this case. The, the law there was passed uh, under then-Governor uh, Pence, and it required informed consent with the use of ultrasound. It would have to use ultrasound. And the uh, woman would have to see the ultrasound, or if she, if she wanted to. And then there would be a waiting period. Both of these have been upheld by the Supreme Court, the use of ultrasound, and then separately the waiting period. Indiana combined those two, and so they expect that to be upheld because both of those have been upheld by the Supreme Court, but not in combination. The other aspect of Indiana, though, is it prohibits abortions that are sought because of fetal anomalies, particularly Down syndrome. And that is significant because what we need to understand about Roe is Roe has been the foundation for choice. Killing that baby for any reason or no reason in particular, just because it's chosen. And when people understand that, the again, Joe Sixpack, Sally Soap Opera, when you talk to people you know and they say, well, I'm pro-choice because I think there should be for those hard cases, you and I know that's less than 2% of the abortions that are done for the heart cases. That abortion is done for choice. And that means at any time, for any reason, or no reason in particular, the average person, they want there to be some reason to kill a kid. You mean you're just going to kill this kid that's late term and there's no reason? You just don't want to be pregnant anymore? The average person does not agree with that. The average person, when they understand Roe, will not go with that. So in Indiana, by saying, if you're trying to kill this child because they have Down syndrome, well, we don't want you doing that. We're going to prohibit it for that. The significance is you're going after the reason, and you're saying you need to offer a reason, and that pops the bubble of choice. And that is significant. So if that is upheld, that is going to throw open the floodgates. There's a couple other uh, laws. There is uh, an informed consent in Kentucky as well. They may take that up. And then there's some other cases, again, that are nibbling around the edges. There's a case out of Illinois and Chicago that has to do with the bubble ordinances. And that's really more of a free speech uh, law, to be honest. It has to do with counseling in front of abortion clinics and the right for people to offer alternatives in front of abortion clinics. So the court has several directions it could take. The real significance that you alluded to is this is a new court, and this president is recreating the courts. The left, the assertive uh, culture warriors of the left, have almost exclusively used the courts up to now. And that is very alarming to them, and they want to be rid of Donald J. Trump because of this singular impact on the courts. And uh, I'll be honest, speaking of the high court, right now we don't know the health of, of uh, Justice Ginsburg. 
And I think that's one of the reasons they're pulling the trigger on on this issue right now. They don't want this president in office for a day longer because it could be today or tomorrow that he has another chance to appoint someone to the Supreme Court. Well, certainly her her health is very precarious, and um, it would be, uh, I mean, I think historical precedence should he be afforded the opportunity at not one, not two, but three high court appointees. It's stunning. We're living in an amazing moment in American history, I believe, in the history of the world. If you look at what's happening in the larger sense, uh, even in Hong Kong, there is a relationship there. We don't want to dwell on this call, but there's an extraordinary moment in history in which we live. And as they say, uh, some people uh, some people uh, help make things happen, and on this radio show, I know you want to encourage people to be involved, educated, motivated, and make things happen in their community and state. Some people make things happen. Some people some people uh, uh, wonder what happened, and then some people don't know what's happening. We as Christians need to realize there is a battle going on right now. And as I said, literally there are people that, and the people in Hong Kong, they're dying because that government is willing to treat human life as disposable. They're fighting Marxism. Communism is being celebrated the 70th anniversary. Many of those people, if you've heard the stories, those are Christians in Hong Kong that are saying, no, you cannot dispose of human lives. We want to have individual freedoms. The right to life in the United States of America is the basis for all of our freedoms. The right to life, the uniqueness of every human being is what our founder said. That's the basis for government, and government has a duty to protect the individual lives of people. In a Marxist worldview, individual lives are cheap. Individual lives are controlled by the government. So we're in a battle of ideas in this very moment, not only in China, but in our own nation. Will the laws of our nation restore respect for individual lives? That's the basis of America's freedoms. And certainly a critical crossroads that you point out at just so many levels. Brian, we appreciate the time. Brian Johnston, Western Regional Director with the National Right to Life Committee. More information available on the web at nrlc.org. 531 from KFAX. Let's get you updated on traffic. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. From the Mutual Newsroom in New York, a bulletin from London, a French communique broadcast by the Paris radio, said today that a truce has been concluded in the battle for the French Atlantic port of La Rochelle and that the Germans have returned 175 French prisoners. And, of course, uh, you heard the earlier bulletin, the BBC recorded at 8.09 a.m. Eastern Wartime, a Radio Flensburg German broadcast quoting the German foreign minister as announcing that the German high command accepts unconditional surrender. The Flensburg radio on the uh, German-Danish border said the German surrender decision was reported by Count Ludwig Schwerin von Krosik, German foreign minister appointed only last week. That is the news bulletin from May of 1945, the way America first heard that the war in Europe was finally over. In post-war Europe, there were three primary challenges. 
the repatriation of displaced peoples, the rebuilding of war-torn Europe, and bringing war criminals responsible for carnage that killed, well, throughout the war in both theaters, up to 50 million people, bringing them to justice. At the close of the war, Hitler had escaped judgment by committing suicide along with his mistress and wife of 24 hours, Ava Braun, while in his Berlin bunker as the Russians bared down on the chancellery. Heinrich Himmler, feared head of the SS, also escaped punishment by taking cyanide poison when he was identified. So too did Hermann Goering, the Reich's number two man, taking his own life before the hangman had the opportunity to do so at Nuremberg. Oh, and one more. Hans Kummler. You say, who? That's an interesting list. Hitler, Goering, Himmler, Kummler. He is, in fact, one of the most notorious Nazi war criminals. He's the Nazi that very few people know of. And he's the Nazi, not only as a hidden Nazi, but the one that did a deal with the devil in the United States. A new book out called The Hidden Nazi, The Untold Story of America's Deal with the Devil, newly released by Regnery Press. And joining me today is the General Counsel, Vice President of Practice Groups of the Federalist Society for Law and Public Policy, and uh, co-author of this new book, Dean Ruder. And Dean, great to have you with us today. Thank you for having me on, Craig. I'm, I'm excited to be here. How many people respond, as, as I did, in first reading the book and thinking, you know, there's a lot of infamous, notorious figures in the history of the Third Reich, and, and certainly I've named uh, several of them. This is a man whose name hasn't got much attention, but whose actions and his involvement in the construction of the Nazi concentration camps and later on in the operation of the feared V-1 and V-2 rocket programs uh, that brought so much terror across Europe, particularly to places like Belgium and to uh, certainly to London. Um, he was a big, influential figure, and yet one that seemingly not only was never brought to justice, but did, as your subtitle suggests, engage in a bit of a deal with the United States. Tell us about him. Well, um, thanks for that introduction. Um, Hans Kammler was, uh, he, we've never heard of him because at the end of the war, uh, according to his driver, he committed suicide. Um, but he was, during the war, as bad as they get, um, and as powerful as they get. No one, uh, but because uh, he committed suicide, no one chased him after the war, no one researched him. His life went essentially unexamined. Everyone believed he committed suicide. Um, but the statements about him from his peers during the war, and these are other SS officers uh, some of them underlings, and maybe, you know, all the regular human uh, condition reasons to dislike your boss, uh, but they described him as uh, r rare obstinacy, um, vile, the worst person I ever knew. Um, and this is in a time of war amongst the sharp elbows of the SS, uh, one of the worst uh, components of one of the worst regimes ever constructed uh, by man. So if you want a guy who's talented experienced, can get the job done, and has absolutely no heart whatsoever, he was the man for the job. No, precisely so. Precisely so. I, we, I mean, we researched him. I'm the lead author on this. I had two other researchers with me who were on the cover of the book as well. Uh, they've worked on this for decades, and I worked on it for close to a decade myself, uh, just doing 
uh, sort of heart and soul research. And we turned over every rock we could. There's, uh, you know, went to national archives in several different countries. I've traveled Europe. Uh, one of the researchers lives in Europe. And we found very, very little uh, in terms of redeeming uh, aspects of, of Hans Kammler. There was not much to suggest he had any sympathy for his victims, any empathy. Uh, he was married. Um, and you mentioned in the outset that he was involved in the concentration camps. He not only, as an architect and engineer, designed the concentration camps, made them bigger, designed the barracks. He was the guy signing the orders, putting the gas chambers and the ovens into the concentration camps. And one thing that I found was just hugely ironic. He ended up having five children. Two of his daughters died early, and one uh, of those daughters had been in the care of a nurse as an infant, uh, and the nurse, tending this baby, left a bottle of chloroform nearby unopened. And so Hans, one of Hans Kammler's infant children died of gassing, and yet I didn't see anything to suggest he had any empathy uh, for the men, women, and children that were sent to the gas chambers that uh, he constructed. So it's a remarkable Almost sounding like a bit of a, uh, how should we say, a polar opposite to that of, of Albert Speer, who, of course, was sort of the the uh, the Reich's um, principal architect. He's the man who uh, built many of the incredible monuments to Nazism. He was going to design Germania once the war supposedly was going to end and, and Hitler was going to be dominating the world. He built the Reich tra- Chancellery. Uh, he built Nuremberg Stadium. So he is the sort of the architect of the monuments to Nazism, and it sounds as if it sounds as if Kammler was sort of the uh, the guy who built all the methodology of Nazism vis-a-vis slave labor camps, the concentration camps, and uh, toward the end of the war, taking over operation of the feared uh, rocket program. Well, that's exactly right. He did he did himself well. Uh, Kammler did that is in joining the Nazi Party before. Hitler became chancellor, and joining the SS before Hitler became president of Germany. So you could say he got in on the ground floor. Uh, Then he came through the Luftwaffe, which was the only real, the military, part of the military that Hitler trusted. He didn't trust the the German army. So Kammler arrived uh, in the midst of the war with exquisite uh, credentials. Uh, He did well from from the Nazi perspective. Uh, in terms of the concentration camps, amassing power, amassing influence, and um, uh, in a parallel vein, a group of rocket scientists, hundreds of them actually, uh, had begun research uh, on rockets in Germany in the 1930s. Um, and they were building rockets by the middle of the war that were being, being ready to be deployed um, that were vastly superior to anything anybody had to that point in history. Um, and there are about a hundred different models of rockets the Germans built, um, but three of them in particular that are important in this book. Uh, and, and Kemmler, by the end of the war, oversaw the entire program. Did he essentially take over the operation of the, the Penemunda Research Center? Well, that's exactly right. Uh, wow. Penemunda was the second installation for the rocket scientists. They started, before the war began, in, in a small facility near Berlin. Uh, from there, as the war's beginning, they moved to Pienamunda because they were going to launch rockets over the Baltic Sea. So that was the perfect site for that. Um, in the, uh, late in the war, late 1944, the Russians are approaching Pienamunda. They're going to capture the rocket team. 
Hans Kammler, who signs the order moving that rocket team to central Germany to, to keep them out of the hands of the Russians and, we think, to be able to deliver them later to the U.S. Army. Uh, that's in January of 1944. February of 1944, Yalta happens. It turns out that that central Germany facility that Kammler moved the rocket team to is going to end up in the Russian zone of occupation. So he moves them yet again in the final month of the war and essentially hand-delivers them to the United States, putting them within a few days' march of the advancing U.S. Army in Bavaria. You know, what's fascinating about all of this, Dean, is the fact that if he were singularly involved in some of this uh, munitions development, um, you know, again, uh, taking over operation of the V-1, V-2 rocket program, uh, no doubt he also had some involvement in some of the, the advancement of, of jet aircraft development taking place. I, I mean, in a sense, he would be sort of on a par with what Albert Speer was doing after Fritz Tott died in 42, and he took over as Minister of Armaments and Munitions, where this really takes a major change is when you see his involvement in the construction of the concentration camps. I mean, we know the SS and Himmler ran them, but somebody had to design them. Somebody had to build these, these factories of death. And this is the guy that was responsible for it, and the construction of the slave labor camps that ultimately provided labor to, to Albert Speer's uh, uh, munitions development. I mean, essentially, we find him, if not at the very center of the so-called final solution, certainly one of the key, if not principal, architects of it. Oh, no doubt about that. And there's, there's two quick things I'd want to say on that point. One, those slave labor camps were operated by the SS. You're right. But it was Kamler then who played a major role in signing out these, renting out these slaves to the German government and to German industry. Um, so Albert Speer needed, needed, needed labor, and he would go to a guy like Kamler to get the help. That's right. And so did Mercedes-Benz and Messerschmitt uh, and a lot of German companies who your listeners would recognize the names of today. Uh, so he was actually... Uh, had a, a, a stream of revenue set up this way for the SS, because the SS, uh, and I didn't know this going into the book, but the SS had ambitions, Himmler and Kammler, of making the SS an independent entity, literally a state within the state uh, that would be totally independent, its own sovereign, totally independent, not just of the German state, but of the Nazi party. Um, so... Uh, to your other point about how bad he was, I do believe if, if, if Kamler had been known to have survived the war, he, he would have topped the list of the wanted war criminals. I think he would have been more sought after than uh, Dr. Mengele, Joseph Mengele, the Angel of Death. I think he would have been higher on the list than Klaus Barbie, the Butcher of Lyon, and even more barbaric than Adolf Eichmann, the head of the Gestapo. What's particularly troubling about this, and we're going to get into this in depth when we come back after the break, what's particularly troubling is that it isn't just that he seemingly disappeared, thought to have died at the end of the war. I think at one point his wife even petitioned the German government to have him declared dead as of May 9th of 45, the end of, of the war in Europe. That's not all that unusual. The fact that the United States absorbed 
and 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 admittedly so many former Nazis, likely including some war criminals after the war ended. We brought in scientists and informants and and officials that cooperated with the Allies as kind of a way of saying, you know, thanks for helping out as the war was uh, was coming to a conclusion. There, that's not all that unusual. What's particularly troubling about this is the fact that he had such a notorious background. And Speer kind of apologized and pretended as if he didn't know what was going on and said he should have, but he didn't. This guy had to have known what was going on because he was helping it to take place. He was providing and building the facilities in which millions of people across Europe were dying in these death factories. So there's certainly no sense that he can say, mea culpa, I didn't know, whoops, I'm sorry. Um, His hands are as bloody as anyone else's. What's problematic about this is that, as you suggest in the book, there was a long period of time, not long after the war, when, well, if not the Allies in general, the United States in specific knew exactly where this guy was. So then it comes down to a core question. Why wasn't he on trial at Nuremberg? We'll find that out as our conversation continues Dan Reuter with us today. The book, The Hidden Nazi, The Untold Story of America's Deal with the Devil, as Lifeline continues. We get a look at traffic right now, 10 away from the hour. From the KFAX Traffic Center, here's the latest. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Day by day, over years... Women were holding their children in their arms and pointing to the sky while they waited to take their place in blood-soaked communal graves. Twelve million men, women and children have died thus, murdered in cold blood. Millions upon millions more today mourn their fathers and their mothers, their husbands, their wives and their children. What rights has any man to mercy who has played a part, however indirectly, in such a crime? BBC reporter on the end of World War II as the Allies made their way across Germany and the totality of the carnage began to really unfold as more and more concentration camps were being liberated and the truth of what was really going on throughout Eastern Europe and Germany really came to the forefront. And I think perhaps, Dean Reuter, one of the key questions asked there at the end by the British reporter, and that is, how could any man be shown mercy for being involved in those sorts of activities. And yet your book raises some very serious questions about the final disposition of the man you call the the guy that made a a deal with the the devil in America, Um, the the notion that we would allow Hans Kammler to go free, um, I, I, I find unconscionable, and yet there are sort of the major specter of doubt raised about what happened to him. Now, we mentioned that his wife had uh, appealed to the German government to have him declared dead. There was rumors that he was hiding under an assumed identity in Germany, maybe escaped to Italy. Some reports placed him in Prague or in Austria. Um, But in fact, 
there was a time at which, while the Allies were looking for him, the United States government had him in custody and knew who he was. Very true. That's, wow. that's exactly right. Um, and and it, is, it is hard to believe, um, and, you know, in doing this research, it's, it's very troubling for me to learn a lot of these things. But I really tried to put myself in the shoes of, of the decision makers on the ground. And I got to a point where I was very reluctant to second-guess the decisions they had made. Uh, you know, the, the war took a long time to end, and for, you know, the last 12 months, I think the writing was on the wall. There were all these rumors of German super weapons, secret weapons that were going to emerge and turn the tide. But, you know, from mid-1944 on, people knew Germany was going to lose the war. And the coming threat was for the Americans, for the Western allies, was going to be the Soviet Union. And that was a threat that was even more um, severe in the sense that it was an existential threat to the United States and to the Western allies. Uh, you know, Hitler never really considered the Western allies enemies. Uh, he imagined a, a, a world after the war where America was a super superpower and so was uh, Germany. Um, he didn't have a real beef with the Americans. Um, but uh, the Russians, on the other hand, America saw as an existential threat. So as the war's winding down, we began to recruit uh, Germans who had been fighting the Russians uh, for years um, as allies, as intelligence allies. We, we inherited entire uh, Nazi intelligence networks uh, so that we could learn how to fight the Soviets and gather intelligence on them and learn uh, about their assets and, and their resources and the way they did business and the way they fought wars. So there, there was a real uh, uh, dramatic um, and very real need uh, to have some of these people um, and at least exploit them for the knowledge they had of the Soviets. Well, so, and again, all along, I mean, there had been the absorption of former Nazis whose uh, loyalties or lack thereof to Germany were, were sometimes questionable, that, that, you know, even ultimately got pulled into things as pivotal as, like the Manhattan Project, which ultimately ended World War II. And, and I suppose we should be thankful that we were able to deal, do a deal with Werner von Braun. I don't think he was ever really identified as being pro-Nazi per se, but there were certainly plenty um, who were pulled into the United States and involved in scientific programs that came from Nazi. Nazi Germany with questionable backgrounds. But this guy is a little bit different. This guy is the architect that helped pave the way to allow the final solution to unfold. Uh, you know, aside from putting him in a room, beating him up and getting information out of him, and then sending him off to a firing squad, I find it absolutely unconscionable that there would be any sense of value in him other than bringing this guy to justice, and, I, and I'm curious about one point before I, I lose my train of thought. Um, there's the questions raised by pro-Nazi historian David Irving, I'm sure you're familiar with him in his book, Hitler's War, that seems to suggest that um, Hitler had no involvement in the final solution, and in fact there's not a single document proving that uh, he ever authorized anything or acknowledged in writing of his awareness of the so-called program and, and kind of sloughs it off and all being about what was being done at the hands of, of Himmler and, and, and perhaps, too, at the hands of people like Hans Kammler. Uh, is there anything in your research in relationship to Hans Kammler that points any line back to Hitler that might suggest that Hitler had working knowledge of exactly what was going on in these concentration camps? 
Well, so first of all, um, we weren't looking for that. We weren't looking sort of for that backward chain of evidence that, that got you to Hitler. Um, what we did find was that, that Kemmler was, uh, along with Himmler, uh, ended up in, in very close to Hitler's inner circle. And, you know, my impression of the, the vastness of the Holocaust, the ubiquitous use of slave labor, which itself was a war crime, uh, it was so pervasive so ubiquitous. I don't think anybody uh, didn't know about it on some level. They might not have known some of the horrific details about deliberate killing, um, but I mean, these slaves were working alongside other German workers in every uh, every factory, every um, you know um, city, in every town of of the, the territory occupied by the Reich. So, to me, it's. I, I would find it very, very difficult to believe that Hitler didn't know about uh, the Holocaust. I did find evidence that there was a lot going on in the war that, that Hitler didn't know about, um, and maybe some strains of research that uh, that Kamler was in charge of, including some components of some nuclear research that uh, you know Hitler had specifically ordered that nuclear research could continue, but it was going to be geared towards energy, so uh, propulsion of nuclear submarines. Uh, and maybe nuclear power plants. The the oddity is that the things that could have turned the tide of the war, things like development of a nuclear weapon or uh, advancements in uh, jet aircrafts, uh, Hitler kind of poo-pooed as as low priorities. They had changed, you're right, they had changing priorities that were, to me, astonishing. Uh, You know, the the, the rockets were a high priority, then they were a low priority, then they were a high priority, and then literally one time Hitler had a dream that the rockets were going to fail. So they became a low priority for a while. Uh, I mean, it's just astonishing uh, the way some of the decision-making uh, happened uh, during, this, uh, you know, during this phase, during this era of history. I want to take a time out. Can you stay with us, Dean, for five more minutes? Sure. I, I want to kind of put a bow on this because this yeah. is this this conversation today, saying, well, Craig, you're talking about events that happened 75 years ago. They're events that, as we've been reminded by the many Holocaust survivors, concentration camp survivors that have been guests on this program down through the years, that we must be reminded of, least we forget, and history, as we know, has a tendency to repeat itself. And so this is not for shock and awe value, but rather to say, particularly to younger generations that know nothing of the events of World War II, to understand what really took place here and why it is that we must endeavor to make sure that something along the lines of a World War II never, ever happens again. That said, as we sort of break through all the components, you know, this, this tends to be arguments about the good guys and the bad guys, and we're the guys in the white hats because we're the allies, and, and all the other guys are the bad guys. But there are some times when, the, in the course of events of a war, decisions are made that, in retrospect, are perhaps not the healthiest, the most honest, or the most moral ones. Today, a look at the hidden Nazi, the untold story of America's deal with the devil. By the way, newly released by Regnery Press, published by the same fine folks that own this radio station, and available at bookstores everywhere. You can also order it online at regnery.com or through amazon.com. We take a time out back with some closing thoughts. Dean Reuter joins us as Lifeline continues. Right now, let's get you updated on traffic.
three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.